The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, we are in a series here at Broadway Church. We're entitled Head Scratchers. It's a series dedicated to tackling some of the toughest topics that Christ followers face, topics that stir up conflict and confusion. Well, today's topic is unique in the sense that it does both. It stirs up conflict and confusion at the same time. Today, we're addressing the doctrine known as the Trinity. In a nutshell, the Trinity is the teaching that God has revealed himself to be three persons, but one God. Three persons, one God. Now, this has caused conflict because there are those who have stridently rejected and continually continuously mocked this concept for centuries. And it has stirred up confusion because even many who claim to believe it have no real understanding of why they believe it or what the doctrine actually entails. So in our very limited time today, we're going to do our best to bring clarity to this head-scratching issue. Did you know that for the longest time, there were two competing views, two competing versions from eyewitnesses regarding what happened to the Titanic when it sank in 1912? Of course, people abandoned ship and were floating around the the, the Titanic in, in life rafts, but there were eyewitnesses who testified that the ship split in two before it sank. But there were also eyewitnesses who insisted that when the ship sank, it was in one piece. For decades, there was a lot of conflict and confusion over this issue. Sometimes that happens in life, doesn't it? Sometimes different people can look at the same evidence and come up with different interpretations. Well, when it came to the Titanic, the matter was settled once and for all in 1985. It was in that year that Dr. Robert Ballard and his team did what no one else had been able to do up till then. Diving deep into the ocean, they discovered the debris field from the Titanic. And once and for all, they were able to get a clear picture of the wreckage, confirming the account that indeed the ship had split into two. A clear, objective look at the evidence does wonders, doesn't it? Well, a similar dynamic has happened when it comes to the nature of God. Over the centuries, through various authors of the Bible, God gradually revealed to himself, to us, the full revelation of his nature. And the final piece of God's self-revelation unfolded with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, like those floating upon the the cold Atlantic waters, some eyewitnesses of God's revelation struggled to come to grips with what had been placed before their eyes. So, in the year 325, the leaders of the early church gathered for a month-long meeting in the ancient city of Nicaea, located in modern-day Turkey. For the entire month, these leaders did a deep dive into Scripture to clarify what God had revealed about himself. And they summarized their findings in a document known as the Nicene Creed. Now, what the Ballard expedition was to the clarity surrounding the Titanic, the Nicene Council was to the clarity surrounding the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, let me say this as I begin. Some people stumble over the fact that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. And that's actually true. You cannot find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. 
But that's actually irrelevant. You say, well, Darren, that sounds important. Why is that irrelevant? Well, the word omnipresence is never, you can't find it in the Bible, but the concept that God is present everywhere is certainly taught in the Bible. The word omniscience is nowhere in the Bible, but the concept, the doctrine that God is all-knowing is certainly taught in the Bible. The word omnipotent is not found in the Bible, but the concept that God is all-powerful is certainly taught in the Bible. And in a similar way, the word trinity is not found in the Bible, but the concept, as we're about to see, is certainly taught in the Bible. But nonetheless, I understand it's a concept that some people find confusing. And one of the reasons why this concept of the Trinity can be confusing is because there's been a lot of false information thrown out there over the years. Let me give you an example. There's a knock on your door, you open it, and you discover a well-meaning member of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society standing there. Now, two of them, actually. And they're more commonly known as Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses have been spreading false information about the Trinity for well over a century. Listen to how this organization typically depicts falsely the teaching of the Trinity. Quoting from its own publication entitled Awake, it asserts Christians, and I quote, teach that God is a Trinity of three gods in one. Now that's not true. That's what they say, but that's not true. The doctrine of the Trinity does not teach that there are three gods in one. If anyone does teach that there are three gods in one, they are not teaching about the Trinity. Our Muslim friends have been spreading false information regarding the Trinity as well. The writer of the Quran clearly had a misinformed understanding when it came to this uh, concept. Listen to how the Quran falsely describes the Trinity. Again, quoting from the Quran. And beware the day when Allah will say, Oh, Jesus, son of Mary, did you say to the people, Take me and my mother as deities, as gods, beside Allah? Apparently, somehow, somewhere, the writer of the Quran had been given the false information that the doctrine of the Trinity is the belief that there are three gods, Allah, Jesus, and Jesus' mother, Mary. I mean, that is just plain bizarre and has nothing to do with the biblical concept of the Trinity. I recently read about a woman who was looking after her 60-year-old nephew named Daniel She just had him for the weekend and and she took him out to the park and he was swinging on the swings and Daniel fell back and hit his head and he was knocked out briefly. Now, this woman happened to be a nurse, so she knew the protocol and she took very good care of him over the next uh, 24 hours. In fact, that night when Daniel went to bed, she woke him up every hour on the hour just to make sure that he was okay. And she would wake him up and say, Daniel, what's your name? What's your name? And he'd look up and he'd say, my name is Daniel. And then she'd let him fall back to sleep, just making sure he was okay. Well, when she went to check on him at 5 a.m., she was about to shake him and she looked and he had pinned a note to the chest of his pajamas and the note said, my name is Daniel. (laughs) When it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, Christians feel a bit like Daniel. How many times do we have to tell the truth before people finally get it? Well, as I said, there's a lot of false information out there. To illustrate this, I gave you a bit of a quiz on your outlines today. I imagine that most of you have gone through those five statements and you've done your best to determine which of them are true and which of them are false. 
For the sake of time today, let me just say this. They're all false. Every one of those statements is false. None of those statements represent what the Bible teaches regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if you listen closely for the next few moments, you should be able to return to that quiz when we're done and discern where the error is in each of those statements. So let's get right to it. What exactly has God revealed to us about himself? What does the Bible teach regarding the nature of God? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches that there is one God, just one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James, the the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote this in his letter. He said, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, James is saying, you you believe there's only one God? Well, good. That's Christianity 101. That's theism 101. That is so basic, even demons understand that. That's not a big deal. There's one God. So this is not in doubt, or it's not up for debate. The Bible could not be clearer. There are not many gods. There are not three gods. There is only one God. Now, when we say that God is one, or there's only one God, what do we mean? So there's no confusion when we're talking about one God. Let's define our terms. When we say there's one God, we're referring to one singular being, just a singular being, one soul, okay? That's what we mean by one God, a singular being, one soul. For example, just like you are one soul, you're one being, God is one soul, one singular being. So like little Daniel who fell off the swing, let me pin this truth to our hearts. We do not believe there are three gods. We believe there's only one God, one singular being, one soul. Okay, are we clear on that? Yes, you're with me? Yes? How many gods are there? One God. Okay, let's keep going. What else did God reveal about himself to us? What else does the Bible teach? Well, number two on your outline, the Bible teaches there are three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all distinct from one another. So the Bible teaches there's one God, but the Bible also clearly teaches there are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they are all distinct from one another. Now, before we look at a couple passages that affirm this, let's once again pause to define our terms. I've learned over the years we need to be clear about our terminology. When we use the word person, what do we mean? Person does not mean human. We're not saying three humans. The word person does not mean someone with a body. The word person is much more specific than that. As your outline says, a person is a center of self-consciousness. A person says, I exist. A person is aware that they exist. It's a mind with a will and an intellect. Person means a center of self-consciousness, a mind with a will and an intellect. A person has the ability to think and rationalize and be aware of their own existence and speak in those terms. You can be a person, a center of self-consciousness, a mind, and not have a body. For example, angels are persons, but they don't have physical bodies. Angels are unembodied minds. We humans are persons who just happen to have physical bodies, but our bodies are not what makes us persons. 
You can be a person. You can be a mind, a self-conscious being without having a physical body. Hey, in fact, that's God's experience of reality. God doesn't have a physical body. Remember, the Bible says God is spirit. But you can't deny that God knows what it is to experience personhood. So let's be clear. When we say person, we mean a mind, a center of self-consciousness. With that in mind, pardon the pun, let's go back to the second key that uh, the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there are three persons, three centers of self-consciousness, three minds, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And you say, where does the Bible teach this? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, for example, all three distinct persons are depicted at Jesus' baptism. You can count them with me. They're interacting with one another. They can't be the same person. They're interacting at the same time. It says in Mark 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. It'll be on the side screens here. At that time, Jesus, there's one, came down from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit, there's two, descending on him like a dove. It doesn't say he was a dove. It says like a dove. And then thirdly, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You, I, two distinct persons. You have three distinct persons there. Jesus, the Spirit, the Father. In John's gospel, all three distinct persons are described when Jesus explained what would take place after his resurrection. John 14, 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, one, whom the Father, two, will send in my name, that's three, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Clearly, Jesus is describing three distinct persons, three direct or distinct centers of self-consciousness. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So just like the first point we saw a moment ago, the second point is the clear biblical teaching. It's the third point in our outlines where people start to get confused. When it comes to describing these three distinct persons, the Bible refers to all three persons as God. And this is where people start to get confused, understandably. You cannot read the Bible as it is plainly written and not acknowledge this fact. For example, first of all, the Father is referred to as God in Scripture. In Psalm 89, the psalmist depicts God speaking to a faithful servant. And in the psalm, God says, he will call out to me, you are my Father, my God, the rock, my Savior. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' disciples ask him uh, to teach them how to pray. And Jesus responds to the request by saying, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So it's quite clear. In the Bible, the Father is referred to as God. I mean, this is pretty simple. This is not controversial, except that that's not all the Bible teaches. We're going to keep reading. There are some... Um, I'll call famous first lines in literature, aren't there? I mean, the first line to Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Legendary. 
Every baby boomer knows the first line to Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. When I learned guitar decades ago, the first song I ever wanted to learn to play was Stairway to Heaven. And every boomer knows the first line. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. You never thought you'd hear stairway to heaven quoted in a sermon, did you? One of the books in the New Testament has a famous first line as well. And the opening sentence of the Gospel of John, describing Jesus, John lays down this monumental, incredible declaration. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When I studied Greek in university, the first thing I did, took to my Greek professor, who was not a Christ follower, this is in secular university, and I took him John 1.1, 1, 1, I said, Professor, can you tell me what does this say in English? And he says, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thank you. And then John went on to say, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John knows how to start off with a bang, doesn't he? John says, let me put it right out here for you. Jesus, the Son who took on flesh, is God. In a letter he wrote to the Colossian church, the Apostle Paul described Jesus this way, in Colossians 2.9. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells or lives in bodily form. Wow. When you're looking at Christ, you need to know, Paul said, that all the fullness of God, the deity, lives in bodily form. You're looking at God in flesh. That is an incredible statement. That's like me saying, when you see Lewis, know that all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. I like Lewis, but come on, that's a stretch. This is an incredible declaration about the deity, the divinity of Jesus. In his letter to a young man named Titus, Paul wrote this in uh, Titus 2.13. We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Son who took on flesh, a new understanding of God's nature began to unfold. God was even more incredible than the Old Testament saints had ever realized. In the Bible, it's undeniable. Not only is the Father referred to as God, but as your outline says, the Son is also referred to as God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's undeniable. So then, the Bible clearly teaches that there's only one God. The Bible also teaches that there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Bible clearly refers to the Father as God, but instead of stopping there, the Bible also clearly refers to the Son as God. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, hold on. Before we tackle that question, we need to factor in one more thing that the Bible clearly teaches. Because not only is the Father referred to as God, not only is the Son referred to as God, but the Holy Spirit is referred to as God as well. In the book of Acts in the New Testament, it was written by Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. It's sort of a historical t 
telling of what happened after the, the resurrection of Jesus and the acts of the apostles, what the apostles did, their acts, after Jesus rose from the dead. It gives some history over the uh, uh, next several years. And in Acts chapter 5, Luke describes what happened to the uh, Christ followers in the city of Jerusalem early on. There were some desperate um, economic times and, and sociological times. Social, is that the word? Things were tough in Jerusalem for a season. And the Christ followers were experiencing some great poverty, but some of them had great wealth. So what they determined they would do is this. They said, listen, they gathered the church together and they said, if you, we're going to have a big garage sale and we're going to pool our resources so we can distribute some money to the poor amongst us in our church. Hey, listen, if you even have real estate that you're willing to, to, to liquidate and you can contribute to this fund as well by liquidating some of your real estate, if you're willing to do that. But we're going to gather together our resources. You decide what you want to give. So it's a love offering, if you will. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira, two Christ followers, they had some extra real estate, and they decided they were going to sell it and donate the money to this love offering to help people in the church. Except what Ananias and Sapphira decided was, amongst themselves, they said as a couple, listen, here's what we'll do. We're going to sell it for 1,000 shekels. We're going to give 500 shekels to, to the church, and we're going to keep 500 for ourselves. We'll tell them that, that's, that we only got 500 for the property. It'll look like, you know, we'll get, a, we'll get a receipt for 500 shekels. It'll look like we're being very generous, but we're actually making a profit. This is good. So they, the couple agreed together they would secretly do that. So... Ananias brings the 500 shekels. I don't know what the amount was. The Bible doesn't say. He brings the 500 shekels to Peter, lays it at Peter's feet in the offering, and says, there you go. And Peter, God gave Peter supernatural wisdom here. Peter knew that that wasn't what they got for the property, which in itself wasn't a big deal, as we'll get to in a moment. But Peter says, Ananias, is this how much you got for your land? And Peter said, yeah. And Ananias said, yeah. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart, look at this, that you lied to the Holy Spirit? Hit the pause button for a second there. You can't lie to a force. You can't lie to a, a wall socket. You can't lie to a bolt of energy or electricity. You can only lie to a person. The Holy Spirit is not God's force, God's energy. The Holy Spirit is a person who can be lied to. You've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Now listen, Ananias, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, Ananias, it's not about the money. The property was yours. You could do whatever you wanted. You could have kept the property if you wanted. No one demanded you sell property. You chose to do this. But it's what you've done since that's troubling Ananias. After, you know, so you, you, it's not about the money here. He said, Peter goes on to say, what made you think of doing such a thing? Well, what was the big deal? Peter shocked at the depth of Ananias' deed. What did Ananias do? Look what he said. You have not lied to men, but to God. Do you see it? Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And Ananias, when you lie to the Holy Spirit, you are lying to God. It's undeniable. Peter is equating the Holy Spirit with God. 
So in the Bible, the Father is referred to as God. The Son is referred to as God. The Holy Spirit is referred to as God. I mean, Jesus himself referred to the Spirit as God when he was describing his own ministry. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I mean, there are numerous other passages we could cite, but to respect our time, this should suffice. The teaching of the Bible is clear. The Father is referred to as God. The Son is referred to as God. The Holy Spirit is referred to as God. So when we add everything up, what do we get? When we pull it all together, all that God has revealed about himself to us, what do we have? The Bible teaches there's how many gods? One God. The Bible teaches there are how many persons? Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all distinct from one another. In other words, they're not all the same person. Now I'm the Father. Change. Now I'm the Son. Change. Now I'm the Spirit. That's not what the Bible depicts. They've all interacting with one another at the same time. And thirdly, the Bible refers to all three persons as God. So it's really quite simple. We have three divine persons, yet one God. Three, or tri, one unity. Tri-unity, trinity. That's where we get the word. Tri-unity, three, one, trinity. Which brings us to today's big idea. I'm going to do my best in this next sentence to, to describe the trinity to you in the simplest terms possible. Terms that you could repeat to someone else. Just as a human is one soul that's home to one person, God is one soul that is home to three persons. Just as a human, you, are one soul that's home to one person, God is one soul that's home to three persons. You say, hold on, that, that's, not, that, that's not right. You can't have three persons and one soul. Well, says who? Because humans, there's one soul, one person. Yeah, what's your point? Sure, the rule of thumb for humans is one person per soul. I can't say, hi, my name's Darren and I'm Bob. No. The rule for humans is only one person, one mind, one center of self-consciousness per being, per soul. That's the rule of thumb for humans, but that's not the rule of thumb for God. Why is that so difficult for us to deal with? A human is one soul home to one person. God is one soul that's home to three persons. It's really pretty simple. So why do we struggle with it? I think the answer might be found in a conversation that was held between a bunch of barnacles deep on the ocean floor. True story. Barnacles, of course, we know are these crustaceous creatures that stick to rocks and things. And there's a bunch of barnacles that were huddled together on, on a rock in the floor of the ocean, and they were having a philosophical discussion. They were discussing whether or not humans existed. They'd never seen a human. They'd only heard this legends that there were these creatures called humans. And they were discussing this, and, and then a rock rolled by with the current, and there was a wise barnacle with a long flowing beard stuck to this rock. And they said, oh, wise barnacle, stop for a second. We have a question for you. And he said, yes, what is it, my children? And they said, oh, wise barnacle, do humans exist? And the wise barnacle said, ah, oh, yes, humans exist. Well, these young up-and-coming barnacles laughed to themselves. They said, oh, tell us, tell, tell us what these humans are like. And the wise barnacle said, well, humans do not have shells. Well, these barnacles laughed. Every barnacle knows you have to have a shell, otherwise you get eaten. 
They said, oh, tell us some more about these humans. Well, said the wise barnacle, humans do not need to stick to things to live. Well, these barnacles laughed, tears flowing from their shells. They said, seriously, every barnacle worth its salt, see what I did there? Every barnacle worth its salt water knows that you've got to stick to something in a shell to exist. Otherwise, you'll float off and the fish will eat you. They said, tell us more. And the wise barnacle said, you need to know as well, humans do not live in water. They live in something called land with air. Well, the barnacles laughed so hard they fell off the rock. Every barnacle knows that the whole world is just water. This land, this air is only this legend that some people talk about. It doesn't actually exist. The barnacle's problem is similar to our problem. When barnacles tried to imagine humans, they insisted that humans had to be just like them. We tend to fall into the same faulty thinking when it comes to God. When we try to imagine God, we tend to insist that he has to be just like us, except he's not just like us. God is a completely different class of being. We are finite, created, physical humans. God is infinite, eternal, creator God. We are one soul home to one person. He's one soul home to three persons. God is Trinity. We are not. Deal with it. Now, I know you filled in your last blank and you think we're done, but hold on for three more minutes because there's much more going on here if you'll take the time to ponder it. The truth is here. The truth that is here impacts your life at its deepest core. You may be sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, well, thanks for this, Darren. I mean, okay, uh, it's an important topic and all, and I, I suppose it had to be addressed at some point. But this was basically like an intellectual theological exercise, right? Let me challenge you to think deeper. We've learned today that God, by his very nature, in his very essence, is a tri-unity. God is three distinct persons sharing one soul, existing in absolute perfect unity. We know something else about God's nature here at Broadway Church. 1 John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And we learn that that word for love is the, one of four Greek words he could have chosen for love. The word he chose is the highest level of love possible. It's agape. It's the word for the purest love imaginable, unconditional affection. God is the purest love imaginable, Scripture says. Please hear and understand this. The God who created you is a trinity by nature. That means the God who created you is by nature a God of relationship. A God who is by nature the purest love imaginable in relationship. And this loving God of relationship is not facing inward in some tight, closed circle. He's facing outward, inviting you to join him. This is what you were created for. This is what you're longing for. This is the purpose of your very existence. You were created to experience and express the purest love imaginable. 
This is what your heart craves. This is what your soul is aching to experience, to be enfolded into the love that is experienced by and expressed within the Trinity. This is why the Word became flesh. This is why the Son took on humanity and came to earth to interact with us. We had become separated from God's love. So Jesus came to restore us into relationship with God's love. If you don't believe me, listen to Jesus himself. It was the Last Supper. Jesus knew it was the end of his ministry on earth. Jesus knew this would be the last time he would get to pray for and with his disciples. So listen to what flowed out of Jesus' heart at this crucial moment. After praying for his disciples who were there with him, he looked beyond into the future. He saw you, he saw me, he saw us, and he prayed for us. Did you know that? Listen carefully to his words as recorded in John chapter 17. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them, speaking of the disciples, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's talking about you. Jesus prayed for you. Did you know that? What did he pray? What does he want for you? I pray that all of them, talking about you and me, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That relationship, intimate, agape relationship. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Am. This is what you were made for. This is the level of love and relationship that is waiting for you in Jesus Christ. That you would participate in the love experienced and expressed within the Trinity. The Spirit of God is present right here, right now. He's drawing you to Himself right here, right now. He's welcoming you, He is wanting to embrace you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. In this final moment, say yes to him and let the love of the triune God transform your heart.